All right, it's time to put away our Iliad and start in on the Odyssey. And no need for prologue or questions or anything. We'll cover those on the, at the Q&A later this week. Um, or, you know, in the next few weeks since I'm recording this in the past. Uh, let's jump right in. Let's talk about the Odyssey and what's going on here. Because there's a lot to talk about in these first few sections. Um, first off, and most obvious, is the first word, again. Um, it's not officially the first word in this translation. I'm not sure that, like, Lombardo could successfully rework the sentence. But it is pretty obvious that the theme here is memory. Um, as we talked about rage in the Iliad and all the different ways that rage interact with the characters, so we're going to be focusing a lot on memory here in the Odyssey. But that said, we're probably not going to talk about it all that much in this particular lecture. Um, you will be able to see a lot of people talking about their memories here in the first chunks, um, and I do kind of want to draw attention to it when we reach those points, but it isn't as obvious as it will be later. So just keep in mind, we are going to be talking a lot about memory. We are looking at a lot of the characters' interactions with memory. We're looking at the way that memory informs the way that people behave and the way that various char characters and actions play out. All this is going to be focused primarily on memory. But weirdly, this book actually takes a kind of strange turn when it comes to the actual plot business. You would think, in a book called The Odyssey, that we would start off with, naturally, Odysseus. This being his book, his adventure, his epic, so on and so forth. But it's actually going to be book five, where we first, in fact, act or see Odysseus acting. Um, we're told very early on that he's been stranded by Calypso, he wants to return to his home and his wife, but he can't, and then we immediately gear up and start talking about Zeus and Athena. Zeus is preoccupied with Aegisthus, who just got wrecked by Orestes. Keep in mind this story of Agamemnon and Orestes is going to be hanging out in the wings of our discussion of the Odysseus quite a bit, but we'll get to that when we get a little more focused. Um, the main issue here is that Athena wants Odysseus to go free and is starting to get grumpy about how they've sidelined him for so long. And notice that the reason why he's been sidelined has been the fact that he has angered Poseidon. Um, so Poseidon obviously has this beef against Odysseus. We know from Apollodorus that it's related to the fact that like Odysseus slighted him in Troy, but that's not going to be the reason here in this epic. We will discover the reason why uh, Poseidon is pissed off at Odysseus all of the time. Um, but notice the way that Zeus talks about this. Quite a little speech you've let slip through your teeth, daughter. This is line 70 in book one. How could I forget God like Odysseus? No other mortal has a mind like his or offers sacrifice like him to the deathless gods in heaven. But Poseidon is stiff and cold with anger because Odysseus blinded his son, the Cyclops Polyphemus, the strongest of all the Cyclopes, nearly a god. There's a lot to unpack there, so let's start taking it apart. First off, we see why Poseidon is banned at Odysseus. He blinded his son, the Cyclops Polyphemus. We will see that whole scene play out later. Um, so we'll put a pin in that and wait for it. Suffice it to say that Poseidon is beside himself with anger because of the fact that Odysseus blinded Polyphemus. Um, but notice the first part of this as well. No other mortal has a mind like his or offers sacrifice like him to the deathless gods in heaven. There are two characteristics that Zeus points out here that makes Odysseus especially 
valuable to the gods, especially beloved by the gods. And there are two characteristics that are going to define Odysseus as much as rage defined Achilles and loyalty defined Hector. They are the fact that he is smart, no other mortal has a mind like his, and the fact that he is pious. He also offers sacrifices to the deathless gods in heaven. These are the two things about Odysseus that you should definitely keep in mind every time that we see him. They are the two characteristics that are going to motivate all of his actions. Um, because as much as I try, like told you about Hector being the most awesome hero in the Iliad, Odysseus's characteristics here in the Odyssey are going to make him even more admirable at the end of the day. Like, as much as there are flaws with both Hector and Achilles, as much as they both make mistakes, the couple of mistakes that we're going to see Odysseus make are going to be fairly light by comparison. He is pious, he is smart, he deserves to go home. Everyone feels this, with the exception of Poseidon, who is blinded by his anger. Um, now, Athena, to start this process moving, actually doesn't go directly to Odysseus at all, but instead goes to Odysseus's home, Ithaca. And we need to talk a lot about Ithaca. Like, Ithaca is a huge deal. It is the place where Odysseus is trying to get to, and you'll notice that Odysseus frequently gives up some pretty good options, some pretty good digs, in order to get back to Ithaca. Um, and Ithaca is in a really weird political situation at this moment. Like, the whole of the setup here in Book 1 is largely to give us an idea of what's happening in Ithaca. Make us feel what Odysseus feels for his home and make us realize the the sort of danger that his home actually is in. Um, now remember, this is once again at the very end of the Trojan War, like in fact significantly after the Trojan War at this point. Um, remember, the whole Trojan cycle takes a long time to resolve. It was about 10 years between, like, Helen getting abducted and then everybody finally making it to Troy. It was another 10 years that the Greeks, the Achaeans, were stuck on, uh, on Trojan shores, like, trying to take over the city and failing. And at this point, it's been yet another 10 years since Odysseus left Troy trying to get home and got blown off course and had his various misadventures. So it's been 30 years at this point since Odysseus has seen Ithaca. Um, he has been away from home a very long time. He misses his family. Telemachus, his son, has grown up. He is like a full-grown, you know, adult in his own right. Um, but also, like, since he's been gone, things have really gone to pot in Ithaca. Um, now... The first 10 years of the journey, probably not that much bad stuff had happened in Ithaca because, you know, Odysseus did have to leave home, but, like, everybody was on board with the fact that hey, they're all going to, uh, to Troy, they're all going to go to this battle, no big deal. The second 10 years, everybody knows that they're at war, so again, there's not a whole lot of change going on. But in the first couple of years after the Trojan War, basically everyone comes home. Like, there's a note that Menelaus is the last to arrive home from Troy, and that was still years ago. He's well installed in his homeland. Like, at the in Book 4 and Book 2 and Book 3, the stuff that we didn't read, um, Telemachus actually goes to Menelaus in Sparta and visits Menelaus and Helen after, uh, since they've been home, and they're well established there. Like, they've been there forever. Um, it's been probably five, six years since the last stragglers arrived home from Troy. And yet Odysseus is nowhere to be found. 
Now, from for Telemachus' standpoint, we'll get to that. We want to talk about like his relationship to his father because like it's one part estranged, one part resentful, one part really complicated. But as far as the like island of Ithaca itself, we're talking about a land that has been without a king for like twenty five years, and nobody is expecting Odysseus to get home after those 25 years. Like, everybody has come home from Troy. Sure, maybe he's still at sea for a little while, but then as the years pass, you know, it's year 26, year 27, still no sign of Odysseus. Everybody else is still home. Everybody assumes the worst. Well, Odysseus must be dead. And that means that Ithaca is a land without a king at this point. That means that it is ripe for exploitation. All of the things that Odysseus left behind are for the taking, in a manner of speaking. Um, and that means his land, his hometown, like the whole land that he was king over, the whole land of Ithaca and all of its people. It means Telemachus and the household of, of Odysseus. And it definitely means Penelope. Um, you'll remember, like, Odysseus got Penelope, according to Adol Apollodorus, way, way long ago when that whole deal was made where everybody had agreed that if anyone attacked or took off, took Helen, carried her off, that they would, everyone who was a suitor to Helen would band together and fight against that person, hence the whole Trojan War. Um, you'll remember that Odysseus sort of outsmarted the situation by getting Penelope as his exchange for making this deal. Again, Odysseus is really smart, knew he couldn't get first prize, but he would definitely take second, given no other options. Um, so he goes home with extremely awesome, extremely worthy, extremely wealthy Penelope, who is a great wife and who is everything you want in the Greek world as far as a wife is concerned. Um, so Penelope, awesome wife, Telemachus, decent son, awesome household, Ithaca, awesome kingdom, all sitting there with no male leadership. Like, Telemachus is not old enough to take over, and most importantly, Penelope is not married at this point. Everyone kind of figures she's been widowed. Odysseus is dead. That means that a whole bunch of people start showing up to try and get her hand in marriage, because this is a really great opportunity for them. Um, in the same way that everyone was, was coming after Helen, like, years ago, and Odysseus broke it up, now everybody is coming after Penelope. Um, this is a problem, though, because Penelope knows, or at least suspects, that Odysseus isn't dead. Um, so, as a result, she is stalling. Um, we talked about this in Apollodorus a little bit. We'll see it here, but considerably later in the text. Penelope comes up with this brilliant strategy where he's, where she's like, yeah, I'm going to absolutely marry one of you many suitors, but first I'm going to weave this funeral shroud for Laertes, my father-in-law, Odysseus's dad. Um, so every day she weaves the funeral shroud and everybody's like, guy, geez, are you done yet? And she's like, nope, not yet, because every night she goes and she, like, undoes everything that she accomplished the day before. So she's keeping everyone in limbo. Like, nothing is changing on Ithaca. There are all these suitors asking for Penelope's hand in marriage, getting more and more impatient with the situation, and yet nothing happens. 
Which means that the suitors are bumming around Odysseus's house, eating his food, killing his livestock, taking advantage of his servants, like messing up the place because they don't know if they're going to actually keep it and are doing so for years, literally years. This is probably year four or five of Telemachus and Penelope unwillingly hosting all of these suitors. Um, and these guys are becoming unruly and for fairly understandable reasons, like they're getting screwed here as much as anyone is, but they're also not behaving well about it. See, here's our second theme that we're going to be talking about a lot over the course of this text, um, hospitality. Um, we talked a good bit in the Iliad about hospitality. Remember when Diomedes and Glaucus meet on the battlefield and they start like listing off their parents and then they're like, wait, oh my gosh, our dads knew each other. Therefore, we can't fight. We are friends. And they exchange armor. Um, the same principle is kind of taking place here. There is a burden of hospitality laid on anyone who is in the position of host. Um, Odysseus himself will run through a number of hosts. We see him being hosted by Nausicaa and the Phaeacians, or at least the very beginning of that here. Um, in this section, I mean. We'll see more of it later, trust me. Uh, but also, like, Telemachus is caught in this ugly situation where on the one hand he has this responsibility to be hospitable to the suitors. They are his guests. They are the ones who are, like you know, living off of his generosity and hospitality. The gods do require people to be hospitable. But at the same time, the suitors are taking advantage of his hospitality. At least at first. Um, it's become more complicated at this point. So, you know, Telemachus and Penelope are welping, welcoming all of these people in. You know, let's be hospitable. Let's, you know, respect the gods. Let's respect these individuals. Always good idea to make, you know, good neighbors and stuff. But the suitors are just mooching off of their stuff. They're eating all of Odysseus's food. They're taking over the house. They're rudely in insulting the, the servants. And as we will find, they're also definitely betting with the maids in many cases. It's a giant mess. This is way more than they should be able to expect from hospitality. But at this point, there's so many of them that Penelope and Telemachus literally can't do anything about it. The suitors are, in a sense, getting violent. Um, they are holding the entire, like, palace hostage. Um, what is Telemachus supposed to do at this point? He's just one guy, and there's 50, even 100 of these suitors at this point. Um, he can't fight them all off. Neither can Penelope do anything. Like, sure, she can come down and be like, yeah, I'm not going to marry any of you losers, at which point, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to carry her off. They're going to loot the place, and one of them is going to run off with Penelope and declare himself king of Ithaca, and there's literally going to be nothing anyone can do about it. So literally the best situation that they can contrive is to sort of just placate them. Yes, it sucks that the suitors are taking all their food and taking their home and wrecking the place and just being assholes about it but seriously what can penelope and telemachus do um they're stuck they're in a really dangerous situation and telemachus especially is in a really bad situation as much as you know penelope is in danger of being carried off by one of these suitors telemachus is just in the way telemachus is the rightful heir of ithaca 
Um, if Odysseus had been here to pass on the crown, Telemachus would probably be king, if not now, then pretty soon. Um, which means that if some suitor decides to marry Penelope and declare himself king of Ithaca, Telemachus is now a potential usurper, and any suitor who knows his stuff is going to want to kill Telemachus and get him out of the way, make Telemachus less of a threat. At this point, the only reason why they haven't done that already is because Telemachus is, again, standing by, giving up his rights, acting like he really doesn't have anything to say about the situation. He is not asserting himself as Odysseus's son and the rightful heir to the kingdom of Ithaca. He has, to some degree, been a wimp, and being a wimp has actually been a pretty good defense mechanism because the suitors don't consider him a threat. But book one is where that starts to change. So let's look at the text here. Um, now that we've got the situation down, let's see exactly where Telemachus is at and how this starts to move. Because Athena's move here is to go to Ithaca. As she says in line 96, to put some spirit into his son, have him call an assembly of the long-haired Greeks and rebuke the whole lot of his mother's suitors. Um, so Athena zips off to Ithaca and she disguises herself. And once again, here is something that we're going to see a lot of in this text. In addition to this business of hospitality and making sure that you take care of your guests, we're also going to see a lot of disguises. Um, Athena is going to disguise herself like twice in just this section alone and probably a dozen more times before the book is over. We're going to see Telemachus himself hide information from the suitors by the end of book one. We're going to see Odysseus dress up in various disguises at multiple times during the course of this epic. Like this is going to be a pretty common practice. Um, so when it happens, I want you to keep track of one, who is the person doing the disguising? Like, who is disguised here? And what are their ends? Like, what is their agenda as far as the plot is concerned? But also be careful to look at what the disguise actually is. Because the disguising is usually a plot business. Like, Athena needs Telemachus to start looking for his father, so she disguises herself in order to make it like known or to sort of get him moving make sure that he takes this journey that she that she needs him to do without you know revealing the fact that she is a goddess remember the gods and goddesses don't as a rule come to people in their full glory even in the iliad they would frequently disguise themselves as other figures to trick people or cause them to make rash mistakes um but who she disguises herself as usually has thematic resonance there's usually a reason for the purposes of the story, for the purposes of the theme, that they choose the disguises that they end up choosing. Um, so let's look at this section. Um, Athena disguises herself here as Mentes, the Taphian captain, um, as she like comes into the palace. And notice the way that Telemachus responds here. Like the suitors are all bumming around the place. They're playing dice. They're just like enjoying themselves, having like a years-long party at Odysseus's expense, but Telemachus spotted her first. This is line 121. He was sitting with the suitors, nursing his heart's sorrow, picturing in his mind his noble father, imagining he had returned and scattered the suitors, and that he himself, Telemachus, was respected at last. Such were his reveries as he sat with the suitors. Now, notice this first glimpse of Telemachus that we have here. He's sitting with the suitors, but he's grumpy. 
He is nursing his heart's sorrow. He is grieving. He is unhappy with his situation. And we're going to see multiple characters, especially Telemachus, Odysseus, and the rest of Odysseus's family, sort of in this weird position where they're sort of dwelling on their own misery, um, nursing his heart's sorrow. And we'll see uh, Odysseus later. There's another good description like that um, in book five and book six. Um, but the key here is that Telemachus is upset and he can't do anything about it. He's like wallowing in his own misery. And as much as we nowadays sort of poo-poo that sort of behavior, like we diagnose it as depression and say, here, have some medication, um, notice that for the Greeks, this is kind of a positive thing. Notice the way that it's phrased, nursing his heart's sorrow. Yes, it's a bummer that he is in this awful situation that, you know, Odysseus is... Odysseus is far away, his father cannot defend him, his household is getting ruined. Like, he's upset, and for good reason. He has a lot of good reasons to be upset. Um, he is in a really bad situation. He might die at any moment if the suitors get uppity. Um, but this is appropriate. Like, he should be mourning for his father. He should recognize that his situation is untenable. He should be angry with the gods to some degree. Um, and notice, too, he's picturing in his mind his noble father imagining he had returned and scattered the suitors and that Telemachus finally is respected at last. Here is Telemachus forcefully playing host to all of these miscreant, ungrateful suitors. Now what Telemachus wants most of all is Odysseus to come home and then put everything in its proper place, reinstate Telemachus as his proper son, and no longer will Telemachus have to take shit from a bunch of suitors. Instead, Telemachus can do what he wants. He can get his respect. Now, he sees Athena, and he's upset. He went straight to the porch, indignant that a guest had been made to wait so long. This is also interesting behavior on Telemachus' Telemachus's part. Notice that hospitality is exactly the thing that has gotten Telemachus in trouble at this point. Like, being hospitable to the suitors, not like just turning them away when they first showed up, is how he ended up in this ugly situation, how he ended up with all the suitors taking advantage of his hospitality and generosity, how he ended up, like, with all of these guests who will not leave. Like, they're the worst Airbnb guests ever. You invite them for a day, and they stay for five years. Um, now, Telemachus greets Athena. He is upset that she has had to wait for so long. Um, and he immediately, like, takes Athena slash, um, the mentees into the house and feeds her and makes sure that, like, she is comfortable and, you know, just sets up food and water for her. Like, he treats her right. Again, it's interesting to see that Telemachus is really paying attention to and respecting the laws of hospitality regarding new strangers, even as he is getting really upset with the suitors who have taken advantage of the hospitality he has already offered. Telemachus is following the rules. He is still respecting this practice, this pious action. Um, and notice that the contrast between what Telemachus does for Athena slash Mentes and how the suitors behave. 
So on page 245, this is around line 135, we see Telemachus spoke and Pallas Athena followed him into the high roofed hall. When they were inside, he placed her spear in a polished rack beside a great column where the spears of Odysseus stood in a row. Then he covered a beautifully wrought chair with a linen cloth and had her sit on it with a stool under her feet. He drew up an intricately painted bench for himself and arranged their seats apart from the suitor so that his guest would not lose his appetite in their noisy and uncouth company. And so he could inquire about his absent father. He's making sure to take care of Athena. He wants to talk to her about where Odysseus might be, if Mentes has heard anything about Odysseus. But then at line 155, the suitors swaggered in. They sat down in rows on benches and chairs. Heralds poured water over their hands. Maid servants brought around bread and baskets, and young men filled mixing bowls to the brim with wine. The suitors helped themselves to all this plenty, and when they had their fill of food and drink, they turned their attention to the other delights, dancing and song that round out a feast. A herald handed a beautiful zither to Phemius, who sang for the suitors, though against his will. Sweeping the strings, he struck up a song, and Telemachus, putting his head close to Pallas Athena's so the others wouldn't hear, said this to her, Please don't take offense if I take my mind. It's easy for them to enjoy the harper's song since they're eating another man's stores without paying anything. The stores of a man whose white bones lie rotting in the rain on some distant shore or still churn in the waves. Notice how Telemachus responds here, because there's an interesting contrast between both his relation to Athena and his relation to the suitors, and also his true relationship to his father and the one he talks about here. Um, so, first of all, the suitors just, like, swagger in, where Pallas Athena is politely guided by Telemachus into the hall and given the best food and drink and, like, put into a comfy chair and so on. The suitors just take what they want. Um, they come in, they expect this treatment, and they do receive it. The maids and the servants all serve them. But they also, like, are rowdy, and they're asking Femius to play music for them, even though Femius the bard does not actually want to play for them. It's kind of messy. They are not behaving politely. They are taking advantage. But see also how Telemachus, at the same time as he allows this to happen, badmouths them behind their backs. Um, he is grumpy about the fact that they are eating another man's stores without paying anything, that they are taking without giving back. But notice too what he says about Odysseus, the stores of a man whose white bones lie rotting in the rain on some distant shore or still churn in the waves. The way that he talks to Mentes, the way that he talks to Athena here, is as though Odysseus is already dead. He acts as though it's a foregone conclusion. But we've literally just seen him a couple pages earlier thinking wistfully of Odysseus coming home and putting everything right. Now, this could be Telemachus is just you know, undecided on the subject. He's not sure where he stands. Is Odysseus alive? Is Odysseus dead? He doesn't know. What he does seem to do, though, is indicate publicly that Odysseus is dead, almost encouraging the suitors. There's no reminder here, hey, Odysseus could come home at any moment. You guys had better watch your ass. Instead, he's sort of playing along. He's letting them all believe that he believes that Odysseus is dead. Um, he's letting them all believe that their actions, their sort of takeover of Ithaca is at least somewhat justified. But that said, he still asks, um, 
he still asks, who are you? Where do you come from? Who are your parents? What kind of ship brought you here? And importantly, he seems to be suggesting, do you know where Odysseus is? Um, now, Athena and Telemachus first establish that Mentes is an old friend of his father's, that they, you know, have that same bond of hospitality, which means, once again, Telemachus and Mentes are bound to be hospitable to each other. Um, also very good. But also notice Athena's sort of, like, elaboration of the disguise here. I am Mentes, son of Ancylus, and proud of it. I am also captain of the seafaring Taphians. I just pulled in with my ship and my crew, sailing the deep purple to foreign ports. We're on our way to Cyprus, with a cargo of iron to trade for copper. My ship is standing offshore of wild country, away from the city, in Wraithron Harbor, under Nyon's woods. You and I have ties of hospitality, just as our fathers did from a long way back. Go and ask old Laertes. They say he never comes to town anymore more lives out in the country a hard life with just an old woman to help him now let's take that apart first off we have mentis son of Ancylus, captain of the seafaring taphians we have an old sailing captain pulling into port that is the cover that athena gives us here um and it's interesting that she picks, you know, the seafaring Taphians, someone who both has hospitality connections to Odysseus and thus warrants good hospitality, but also she chooses someone who is himself a sailor, someone who has probably been at sea for a long time. Um, that means that she has the authority to say, as she does later, that the gods have spared Odysseus, that Odysseus isn't dead. She also has a sort of thematic resonance with Odysseus. They are both sailors. They are both stranded at sea for long periods of time. Um, for the plot reasons, yes, she can say confidently Odysseus isn't dead. She can also sort of sympathize in this case, encourage Telemachus to think of the possible homecoming, know that sometimes these journeys take a lot of time. So she says around line 210, I have come because they say your father has returned. She deliberately lies here, like deliberately stages the, the reason for her coming as Odysseus has already come back. Because by this, it suggests that not only is Odysseus alive, but that the rumors are in fact circulating. More people know about Odysseus's fate than Telemachus would suggest. If Telemachus is undecided about the matter, if he isn't sure whether Odysseus is alive or dead, this is really good evidence that he's alive. The fact that somebody shows up at his doorstep and says, hey, I heard Odysseus is back, probably means that somewhere along the lines, Odysseus made landfall somewhere and said, I'm on my way home right now, and just got sidetracked before he successfully got there. This should be inspiring hope in Telemachus. And it does, to some degree. Um, now she also like notice the way that she talks about Odysseus in this passage. Now I see the gods have knocked him off course. He's not dead though. Not God like Odysseus. No way in the world. No, he's alive. All right. It's the sea keeps him back, detained on some island in the middle of the sea, ca held captive by savages. And now I will prophesy for you, as the gods put it in my heart, and as I think it will be, though I am no soothsayer or reader of birds, Odysseus will not be gone much longer from his native land, not even if iron chains hold him. He knows every trick there is, and will think of some way to come home. But now tell me this, and I want the truth. Tall as you are, are you Odysseus's son? You bear a striking resemblance to him, especially in the head and those beautiful eyes. We used to spend quite a lot of time together before he sailed for Troy with the Argive fleet. Since then, we haven't seen each other at all. 
Notice she emphasizes Odysseus's return and like stokes Telemachus's love for his father three different ways here. First, by saying it was the rumor of Odysseus that led me here, thus leading him to believe that Odysseus is alive. Then by prophesying or claiming to prophesy from the gods directly that Odysseus is alive and that he's coming home soon. And third, by comparing Telemachus to Odysseus, saying, aren't you Odysseus's son? I recognize him in you. Now, Telemachus is really resistant to this at first. He says, you want the truth and I will give it to you. My mother says that Odysseus is my father. I don't know this myself. No one witnesses his own begetting. If I had my way, I'd be the son of a man fortunate enough to grow old at home. But it's the man with the most dismal fate of all, they say I was born from, since you want to know. First off, it's true. Like, philosophically speaking, like, there's this great line in uh, Augustine's Confessions where he says the same thing. No man witnesses his own begetting. Um, we never, we only trust our parents to be our parents. Nobody can say for sure that they're them because, you know, we're a baby at the time. Like, literally as young as we get when the process of us, of us being delivered into the world is proven. Um, but, like, nobody ever says this. Like, what was the last time that somebody, you know, asks you who your parents are and you're like, eh, I really don't know. Like, these people say they're my parents. This one says that she's my mom. This one says that, she's, that he's my dad. But really, like, who knows? Who's, who's to say? Um, nobody ever says that. That's just weird. Like, that's unnecessarily philosophical. You're only, like, being a punk or making a point if, if you're saying that. But what is the point that Telemachus is making here? Like, he doesn't want to be Odysseus's son. As much as we just saw him a few pages ago wishing that Odysseus would burst through the door, like, kick all the, serenit, the suitors out on their butts and, like, reinstate Telemachus as the rightful heir, here he says, if I had my way, I'd be the son of a man fortunate enough to grow old at home, but it's the man with the most dismal fate of all they say I was born from. He resents his parentage here. He wishes that he had been born to anyone but Odysseus, because as he says, Odysseus is the man with the most dismal fate of all. He is the most luckless person in the world. And we'll see Odysseus say the same thing. When he's on the raft getting ready to sail into Phaeacia, he has a moment where he wishes that he had died in Troy, fighting over Achilles' body, because at least then he would get a proper burial. At least then he would get a proper sending off. People would weep for him. Everything would be fine. But instead, here he is, about to die at sea, which he doesn't, unmourned, unrespected, not buried, everything gone awry. Um, Odysseus is completely luckless he is the most miserable man alive it is repeated over and over in this text so again we also see that theme of fate and well, admittedly a little lightly here and different from how it was in the iliad but here we see odysseus is fated to be miserable he is doomed to unhappiness um Everybody else comes home from Troy and, like, it's done with. Even if you're Agamemnon or getting killed by his family, at least it's over. Odysseus, on the other hand, is stuck wandering the seas for ten years longer than the Trojan War should have taken. Um, and Telemachus observes this too. He is also out of luck. He wishes it were otherwise. Um, now, one last thing, because, again, like... I don't want to get too bound up in this. I've already spent a lot of time talking about this initial scene. Um, I do want to jump ahead a little bit to 
sort of what Athena directs him to do and then how Telemachus responds to this. Um, obviously, Athena is upset about the whole, like, mess that is the suitors here, as she says in line 245, the way this rowdy crowd is carrying on all through the house, any decent man would be outraged if he saw this behavior. Um, likewise, Telemachus responds and says, yeah, I'm really worried about it too. They're going to, you know, eventually carry my mother off and probably kill me in the bargain. It's a really bad situation. And Athena says, you really need Odysseus back. Here's what you should do. First off, he's coming home. We just had the prophecy. It's just a matter of time. Um, but notice the direction she gives around line 289. Um, so it's up to you to find a way to drive them out of your house. Now pay attention and listen to what I'm saying. Tomorrow, you call an assembly and make a speech to these heroes with the gods as witnesses. The suitors you order to scatter, each to his own. Your mother, if in her heart she wants to marry, goes back to her powerful father's house. Her kinfolk and he can arrange the marriage and the large dowry that should go with his daughter. So, first step, tell the suitors to go home. Which is ridiculous, and Athena knows that this is ridiculous. There's no possible way that the suitors are going to abandon these awesome situation that they have found themselves in. There's no way they're going home when they can just mooch off of Odysseus's stuff and eventually, like, take his wife and, you know, declare themselves king of Ithaca. No possible way. She knows it's not going to happen. Telemachus is going to do it, and it's not going to happen. In fact, it's a, the suitors all plot his death when he comes back from Menelaus's, which we'll get to. Notice, too, though, the plan with Penelope. Tell her to go back to her father's house and instead get herself worked or get her marriage worked out there where she is safe. Um, if Penelope is, in fact, in danger, if she can't leave at this point, yeah, that sucks. So get her in a better situation. Ship her off to her dad. Remember, this is the same father who had Helen of Troy. He can handle a whole bunch of rowdy suitors. He will not let it get this far out of hand. Um, and then he can arrange Penelope's marriage. He can arrange her dowry and make sure that this goes off a lot more smoothly. Um, my advice for you, she continues, if you will take it, is to launch your best ship with 20 oarsmen and go make inquiries about your long-absent father. Someone may tell you something, or you may hear a rumor from Zeus, which is how news travels best. Sail to Pylos first and ask Godly Nectar, then go or Godly Nestor, then go over to Sparta and red-haired Menelaus. Um, he does this. Like, that's the stuff that we don't read. First he goes to Nestor, who, again, because Nestor delivers this long speech about how awesome things were once upon a time. Um, then he goes to Menelaus, and that's where he actually gets the, the big news, that Odysseus is, in fact, alive. Menelaus knows that he's been stranded with Calypso, and that gives Telemachus hope. Um, so Telemachus returns home, manages to evade the suitor's death trap that they've set up for him because they are trying to kill him on his way back. Um, and then, like, he continues waiting. And notice that's also part of the plan here. If you hear your father's alive and on his way home, you can grit your teeth and hold out one more year. If you hear he's dead among the living no more, then come home yourself to your ancestral land, build him a barrow, and celebrate the funeral your father deserves. Then marry off your mother. After you've done all that, think up some way to kill the suitors in your house, either openly or by setting a trap. You've got to stop acting like a child. You've outgrown that now. And she then compares him to Orestes, the guy who avenged Agamemnon's murder. Now, notice this puts a lot of responsibility on Telemachus's head. Um, there's a sort of weird 
maturation process that he goes through in this conversation like in the process of athena talking to him she turns him from a boy into a man and again this is going to be one of those themes hovering around the corners of this text we will see odysseus's own story of becoming a man a little bit later which we'll get back to um but notice like she charges him with this it is stopped, you've got to stop acting like a child. You've outgrown that now. Um, you've got to take matters into your own hands. And notice Telemachus is capable of doing this. Um, we've already seen him and will see him in his next speech growing wily, the same way that Odysseus was, being strong. Watch Telemachus carefully over the course of this text because we're going to see him change, become a man in a very real sense, be able to take up his father's legacy. Um, now notice here at the bottom of this page, around line 340, after Athena leaves, there is a huge transformation. With these words, the gray-eyed one was gone, flown up and away like a seabird. And as she went, she put courage into Lemachus's heart and made him think of his father even more than before. Telemachus's mind soared. He knew it had been a god, and like a god himself, he rejoined the suitors. Whatever Athena does, putting courage into Telemachus's heart, Telemachus now trusts that his father is going to come home, is no longer suspicious or resentful of his father. Instead, he thinks of his father more than ever, or he think of his father even more than before. His mind soars, and then he, he does this incredible speech to the suitors um, shortly afterward, where he basically just tells them off. Um, so if we look on page 252 around line 390, he calls them out. Like, Penelope has come down the stairs, the, the bard Femius is singing a song about everybody coming home from Troy, and this one really depresses Penelope. Um, she's upset about it. This painful song always tears at my heart, she says. But Telemachus sort of rebukes her? Mother, why begrudge our singer entertaining us as he thinks best? Singers are not responsible, Zeus is, who gives what he wants to every man on earth. No one can blame Femius for singing the doom of the Danaeans. It's always the newest song an audience praises most. Instead, he tells her, go back to your room, stay there, be safe, and, you know, remove yourself from the situation. And Penelope does. She was stunned and turned to go. Her son's masterful words pressed to her heart. Notice the way that Telemachus tells her off here. You should go back upstairs and take care of your work, spinning and weaving, and have the maids do theirs. Speaking is for men, for all men, but for me especially, since I am the master of this house. Now, there's some definite misogynist tendencies here, like I do not want to deny that. Um, but I also don't want to condemn Telemachus, because the indication that we're getting from the text here is Telemachus asserts himself. I am the master of this house. And Penelope is stunned. This has never happened before. Telemachus has not stood up to his responsibilities before. She turns to go, her son's masterful words pressed to her heart. Telemachus is right here from the Greek's perspective. We can talk about, you know, whether or not, like, this is bad behavior on the part of Greeks as a whole later. Suffice it to say, under the circumstances, Penelope really cannot defend herself. She is, in fact, in danger, and her job really is to go up, be with the maids, do their spinning and stuff, because speaking is for men, all men, and not for her. 
She goes upstairs and she weeps for Odysseus and Athena puts her to sleep. Um, Penelope out at this point. But then Telemachus, while they are all listening to the bard, like he just rebuked his mother for getting upset with the suitors. And yet here he freaking shoes them out. Suitors of my mother, you arrogant pigs. For now we're at a feast. No shouting, please. There's nothing finer than hearing a singer like this with a voice like a god's. But in the morning we will sit in the meeting ground so that I can tell all of you in broad daylight to get out of my house. Fix yourselves feasts in each other's houses. Use up your own stockpiles. But if it seems better and more profitable for one man to be eaten out of house and home without compensation, then eat away. For my part, I will pray to the gods eternal that Zeus grant me requital, death for you and here in my house, with no compensation. And they all quiver a little bit. Like, the, ultimately the ringleaders, Antinous and Eurymachus, who we'll see again, like, they aren't impressed and they yell at him. But at the end of the day, everyone is kind of impressed. This is new behavior from Telemachus. Telemachus is asserting his rights as host. He is rebuking the suitors as freeloaders. He calls them arrogant pigs. Um, he basically tells them, I'm going to kick you out tomorrow morning, which is itself a terrible strategy. Like, of course they're not going to leave. They weren't going to leave before they warned him, but now they've got like 24 hours to basically prepare and screw over Telemachus in the meantime. Um, as it happens, they don't. Like, they don't kill him. Um, but notice that Telemachus isn't afraid of them anymore. Even a couple pages ago, he was telling Athena that he's worried that, that the suitors are going to kill him. Now he asserts, I am the rightful owner of this house. I am the master. I have Zeus and the gods protecting me. I will not be ignored. Telemachus very much comes into his own here. Now, he takes off, he goes and sees Nestor, he goes and sees Menelaus, he gets the news about Odysseus, that's all fine and good, we're not reading that part, because, again, I want to get to a, the Odysseus, and I know that we've only got so much of this that we can read. Um, so let's jump ahead to Odyssey 5, um, because this is where things start moving for Odysseus. And I really do, before this session runs out, want to talk about Odysseus, his situation, and just, like, everything that's going on in his mind and his, like, want for home um, at this point. So let's jump ahead. And once again, Book 5 starts with starts in Olympus rather than in any of the mortal realms. Once again, we get sidetracked, and we see the gods interacting before we see the mortals. Um, so once again... Athena is pleading with Zeus for Odysseus's um, fate. He want, she wants Odysseus to be set free. Um, now, Zeus agrees at this point. Again, they're plotting behind Poseidon's back while he's in Ethiopia. So he turns to his son Hermes and says, Hermes, you've been our messenger before. Go tell that ringleted nymph Calypso. It is my will to let that patient man Odysseus go home. Not with an escort, mind you, human or divine, but on a rickety raft, tribulation at sea, until he comes to the land of the Phaeacians, and so on and so forth. This is the way that he's destined to see his dear ones again. So once again, Zeus is following fate here. But as interesting as that is, again, fate is sort of like downplayed at this point in time. It's not as important a theme as some of the other stuff. And I do want to get especially to Calypso and to Odysseus. So let's jump forward. Hermes arrives at Calypso's island, he comes in, inside, Calypso recognizes him right off the bat, but Odysseus isn't inside. 
Instead, we're told, line 85, Odysseus was sitting on the shore as ever those days, honing his heart's sorrow, staring out to sea with hollow, salt-rimmed eyes. Again, this is what I was pointing to when I was talking about Telemachus himself doing roughly the same thing. Nursing his heart's sorrow is what Telemachus is doing, where Odysseus is honing his heart's sorrow. Um, they're doing much the same action, but that word choice, nursing versus honing, is itself kind of interesting. The idea that Odysseus is making his heart more sorrowful, like giving it a keener edge. Honing is like making a weapon more sharp, um, making it better. Um, he is becoming a better sorrower so to speak again like as much as he is depressed as much as he is in grief as much as he is like sad and wants to go home this is a good thing from the greek's perspective he is perfecting his own anguish in a manner of speaking in the same way again that we talk about like people spiraling into grief but here it's good he should want to go home it's important that he still want to go home now, Calypso addresses Hermes and asks, like, what are you doing here? And Hermes tells her, you asked me, goddess to God, why I have come. Well, I'll tell you exactly why. Remember, you asked. Zeus ordered me to come here. I didn't want to. Who would want to cross this endless stretch of deserted sea? Not a single city in sight where you can get a decent sacrifice for men. But you know how it is. Zeus has the Aegis, and none of us gods can oppose his will. He says, you have here the most woebegone hero of the whole lot who fought around Priam City for nine years, sacked it in the tenth, and started home. But on the way back, they offended Athena, and she swamped them with hurricane winds and waves. His entire crew was wiped out, and he drifted along until he was washed up here. Anyway, Zeus wants you to send him back home. Now. The man's not fated to rot here far from his friends. It's his destiny to see his dear ones again return to his high-gabled Ithacan home. He flat out commands Calypso to give Odysseus up. And again, this is Hermes. He doesn't necessarily have the authority, but he does have the authority insofar as he's coming from Zeus, who does make the rules. But notice how Calypso responds. You gods are the most jealous bastards in the universe, persecuting any goddess who ever openly takes a mortal lover to her bed and sleeps with him. When Dawn caressed Orion with her rosy fingers, you celestial layabouts gave her nothing but trouble until Artemis finally shot him in Artigia, gold-throned, holy, gentle-shafted assault goddess. When Demeter followed her heart and unbound her hair for Iasion and made love to him in a late summer field, Zeus was there taking notes and executed the man with a cobalt lightning blast. And now you gods are after me for having a man. Well, I was the one who saved his life, unprying him from the spar he came floating here on, sole survivor of the wreck Zeus made of his streamlined ship, slivering it with lightning on the wine-dark sea. I loved him. I took care of him. I even told him I'd make him immortal and ageless all of his days. But you said it, Hermes. Zeus has the Aegis, and none of us gods can oppose his will. Notice how upset she gets about this. This is unfair, as far as Calypso is concerned. And this should is one of... This is one of the few instances that we see the Greeks actually sympathizing with a woman's plight in this case. They recognize that there's a double standard here, which I think is really interesting. Like, Calypso calls Zeus out for sleeping around with whatever hussy he wants to on any given day of the week, and yet any time an immortal goddess takes a mortal man, everyone loses their minds. Like, she lists three examples, herself included, of a goddess betting with a mortal man and the gods getting really upset about it. 
which I think is interesting. Like Homer, as much as his text, as much as this epic is grounded in this misogynistic Greek patriarchal standpoint, they're not dumb. They're not unaware of the fact that this isn't fair. As much as women are being treated like second-class citizens, they recognize that women are being treated like second-class citizens. Homer is sympathetic to Calypso, and that's not the only one. Like I've stressed before, the Penelope is one of the greatest female figures in the entirety of Greek literature. We're going to see that come into focus much later in the book, but I want to show, to sort of emphasize now that the Odyssey really does have an ear towards women in a way that most of the Greek works we've been studying have not. And keep in mind, this is one of the foundational texts. Like, as much as Hesiod is a misogynistic jerk who, like, insists that all of the world's ills are due to Pandora, this is as much an important work as Hesiod is. Like, this is as much something that the Greeks would be reading and paying attention to. They would know that their wives, that their daughters, are in a really tough spot. And you'll pay attention to how much time women get the chance to do stuff and speak here. Like, even this at this point, Athena is the agent behind the scenes. She is the one moving all of the plot along. She is the one petitioning Zeus for Odysseus's life. She is the one making Telemachus turn into a man. She is the one who gets Odysseus off of Calypso's island and who protects him as he goes. Athena, the goddess, not the usual run of the gods. Homer is attentive to women here, and women arguably have the power here. Um, it is Penelope who everybody wants. It is Penelope's situation that everybody is jealous of. It is Athena who gets stuff done. As much as Odysseus is the hero of the story, he is the hero because he is beloved by the women who help him along. So keep that in mind, because again, like, we've talked a lot about feminism in this class, about, like, the Greeks' attitudes towards women. This text should complicate that perspective a lot, because Homer is attentive to it. Homer is more interested in what women have to say than most of the Greek writers that we've seen. But notice the second part here. Like, as much as Calypso is upset because there's a double standard, Calypso is also upset because she actually really likes Odysseus. Notice the offer she made to him. I loved him. I took care of him. I even told him I'd make him immortal and ageless all of his days. That's a big offer. To make him immortal and ageless all of his days? That's not just like a pithy, you get to be immortal, but then you like turn into a grasshopper deal. She gives him eternal youth, or at least offers it to him. But notice, Odysseus didn't take up the offer. And even when she confronts him later, like even when Odysseus reminisces about this in line 155, he, the poem reads, The nymph had long since ceased to please. He still slept with her at night in her cavern, an unwilling lover made into her eager embrace. Later, Calypso challenges him. On around line 210, she says, Think of it, Odysseus. No matter how much you missed your wife and wanted to see her again, you spend all your daylight hours yearning for her. I don't mind saying she's not my equal in beauty, no matter how you measure it. Mortal beauty cannot compare with immortal. And Odysseus responds, Goddess and mistress, don't be angry with me. I know very well that Penelope, for all her virtues, would pale beside you. She's only human, and you are a goddess, eternally young. Still, I want to go back. My heart aches for the day I return to my home. 
This is yet another really complicated conversation that we need to have. Is Odysseus unfaithful? Um, because, again, like, by our contemporary standards, by our efforts to reject that double standard that Calypso is pointing to here, um, we should definitely take a moment and talk, is Penelope getting screwed here? Like, Penelope's version of faithfulness is, I am going to hold down the fort while the suitors eat me out of house and home, prevent any of them from actually getting married to me, and stay faithful to Odysseus. I will not sleep with another man, I will not let anyone else become king, I will not entertain anyone else in my bed. By contrast, Odysseus has slept with a lot of women since his voyage to Troy. Um, he likely had his fair share of gift concubines like Achilles' Briseis while in Ilium, so he was probably sleeping with various prostitutes or you know, concubines there. He definitely sleeps with both Circe and Calypso, immortal goddesses. Um, he is practically seduced by Nausicaa, which we will get to. Um, and who knows who else he's had along the way. Um, he has not had to be faithful in the same way that Penelope has been faithful. Um, but notice, he passes up a freaking good offer here. Like, it is not every day that a goddess shows up and says, Hey, Odysseus, I think you're so hot, I am going to adopt you into my house, I am going to love and protect you, and if you want it, you can live with me forever. I will take you on, and you can become a god. I will give you eternal youth, I will give you godly powers, you can live forever at my side. And Odysseus says no. Think about that. Because it's not simple here. Like, again, by our contemporary standards, Odysseus is a cad. He is sleeping with other women. He is not remaining faithful in the same way that he expects Penelope to be faithful to him. That's not fair. But Penelope hasn't gotten nearly as good an offer as Odysseus either. Like, all these suitors who show up, she legitimately hates them. Telemachus even mentions this. Like, there's nobody there who can even come close to competing with how awesome Odysseus is. Remember, Odysseus is one of the greatest heroes of the Trojan War. Like, he definitely stands alongside Diomedes and Achilles and Big Ajax as, like, one of the major, major players in the Trojan War. He's no Achilles, sure, but he does beat Ajax in competition, as we'll talk about. And he seems to be more important than Diomedes. Heck, he's the one who comes up with the plan with, for the Trojan horse in the first place. He's the one who wins the Trojan War basically by his ingenuity. He is a heck of a catch. Um, he is a big deal. And Penelope is impressed with him. She does, in fact, love him, care for him. And no one who comes close no one who comes up to her asking for her hand in marriage while Odysseus is gone is coming anywhere near Odysseus's goodness and power. So Penelope doesn't have a great offer. By contrast, Odysseus is getting freaking awesome offers. Like, I know it's sort of this long joke, like, in our culture right now that, like, even among married couples, there's, like, this short list. If, I mean, again, I'm not sure if you're exposed to this. This is, you know, something that you find out when you're a married person. Um, but, like, there's this joke that, like, 
even between my wife and I, we have like a standing agreement that if she ever runs into David Tennant and he wants to sleep with her, that like she gets a pass on that one. Um, and it's all a joke because, you know, it's never going to happen. Much as we both respect and think David Tennant is an awesome actor, he's probably way too busy to pay attention to my wife. But it's sort of this generally accepted thing that like there are exceptions to the marriage rule. Um like, again, part joke, part not joke. Uh, I don't know. It's complicated. Being married is weird. Um, but here it's sort of accepted. Like, so if you ever get the chance to sleep with some famous actor or famous actress, if you ever get to sleep with some awesome politician, go for it. Like, if the if the occasion arises, exceptions will be made. It's, it is generally understood that some people are just so awesome that it's okay to break the marriage vows for them. No holds barred. If that was the case in ancient Greece, goddesses like Calypso definitely fall into this category. Like, Calypso is giving Odysseus the single best offer we have seen given to any man at any point in the entire Greek mythological tradition. Calypso gives him the possibility of being immortal. Gives him the possibility of eternal youth. Like, everything that Odysseus has at home... This is way, way better. And Odysseus even admits this. Even though, you know, for all her virtues, she would pale beside you. She's only human. You are a goddess eternally young. Still, I want to go back. My heart aches for the day I return to my home. For all of Calypso's wiles, for all of Calypso's selling points, for all of the greatness of what Odysseus could have and could be if he actually just agreed to what Calypso offers, he wants to go home. He wants to return to Ithaca. He wants to be with Penelope. And again, as much as Odysseus is unfaithful on this journey, that's a freaking impressive amount of resolve. That's an impressive faithfulness in its own right. Like, the assumption in the sort of joke marriage situation where it's like, yes, it's okay to sleep with David Tennant or Channing Tatum or, you know, name the hot guy of the week. Um, it's always understood that you're going to come home afterwards. It would be a whole nother story of, like, freaking Channing Tatum, you know, multimillionaire, super attractive actor came up to my wife and was like, live with me. Be my wife. I love you more than life itself. Like, that would be a tough call, for sure. She has made her commitment to me. Like, that would be breaking our troth, so to speak. Um, we made an agreement, and now you're violating that. But also, not a whole lot of people outside of, like, our personal relationship and anyone who considers the marriage bond, like, truly sacred, especially in this day and age when marriages and divorces are almost as common as one another, um that wouldn't like nobody would be like no she did the right thing by staying with you know lousy old philosophy professor ben kozlowski no like everyone would be like it was channing tatum we, we totally get it um not many people would call her off certainly in greek culture like if in fact some dude got a got an offer like that like if Anchises in fact had Aphrodite and Aphrodite was like leave your wife and come with me to Olympus like this would be a no-brainer yeah you leave the wife you go to Olympus clearly obviously remember Jason who like passes up Medea not for some goddess but just so he can get like a woman who is also Greek and therefore would offer more honor for his kingship like as much as 
uh, as much as Euripides paints us a fairly sympathetic picture of Medea and how much of a dick Jason is being at this in this situation, most Greeks would be like, yeah, I see Jason's point. Um, yeah, that woman is more desirable. Here we are getting a way better deal. Odysseus is getting godhood. Of course he's going to take on, take the godhood option. That is a hugely awesome possibility. Yes, the right answer, Odysseus, is leave Penelope and... But he doesn't. He remains faithful to her. Um, so I want to stress this. Whether or not you think Odysseus is faithful in the long run, like capital F faithful, capital G good to his wife... This is a really good thing that he's passing up for her. Um, and notice the way he talks about it. My heart aches for the day I return to my home. If some god hits me hard as I sail the deep purple, I'll weather it like the sea-bitten veteran I am. God knows I've suffered and had my share of sorrows in war and at sea. I can take more if I have to. This is about Penelope, but this is also about his home generally. And here we have yet another really important theme that you should pay attention to, home. What is Odysseus's home? Why does he value it so highly that he's willing to, you know, he's willing to pass up the attentions of a goddess, indeed godhood itself, for the sake of it? Um, think about that. Because that means, like, Odysseus is saying, my home, my wife, my son, my homeland, my kingship is all more valuable to me, more precious than immortality and, immortal, and eternal life. Um, who would say that? Like, really? That's an impressive commitment. That is an impressive amount of love. Um, and part of that is it's all one to Odysseus. Like, it's not just Penelope who he's being faithful to here. He's being faithful to this bigger idea, this idea of where he belongs in the world. Ithaca isn't just his home in the sense of it is, like, the place where he was born, the place where he was raised, the place where he has connections to. Like, the Greek notion of home is another one that we've probably lost in our time, and yet one that we are conscious enough to want. Um... Like, I imagine that in your life, odds are you probably do not have a home in the sense that Odysseus has a home. Like, a birthplace, a rooted place, a place where you belong. Um, like, remember, it's not as simple as, you know, well, in ancient Greece, people didn't travel, so, like, you live all your life there. Remember, he's been gone for 30 years. Like, if anyone experiences, you know, living on the road or living in a sort of gig economy, it's Odysseus. He had the worst gig ever. Um, but at the same time, he understands home. He understands that his right place, the place where he belongs, is Ithaca. And remember, too, how hard he fought to stay there. Remember way back when, when we were talking about the Trojan War and all the stuff in Apollodorus, Odysseus feigned insanity so he wouldn't have to go to the Trojan War. He tried to get out of it. Um, most of the people are sort of like, yes, we will go to war. We will take the spoils. It's going to suck, but we're going anyway. Odysseus is like, nope, I want out by any means necessary. I don't care how dishonorable it is. I don't care how cowardly people think I am. Nope, I'm staying home because I love my home. I love my family. I love everything about Ithaca. And instead, he is the one who gets stranded, lost for 30 years. Odysseus is faithful to his home, 
even if he is not faithful to Penelope so much, um, even if he does not respect our traditions of what it means to be faithful to one's wife or to one's partner, Odysseus is very much faithful to his homeland, to his responsibilities as their king, to his role as pater familias, head of the household, to his role as Telemachus's father and Penelope's husband as one thing. Um, it's complicated. But don't, don't like, don't write him off quite so easily. It is, it's more than what meets the eye. Um, Odysseus is being faithful, although it is by Odysseus's terms. Whether that stands up to scrutiny, that is ultimately I can't decide for you. But do note that it is more than just, you know, it's all fun and games. Odysseus gets to be on the road for all this time. Like, it, it's complicated. Odysseus is, in fact, homesick for all of this story. He'll slip up once or twice. We'll talk about that. Um, but... For the most part, certainly as we see him here, Homer is emphasizing very, very strongly Odysseus has been fighting for his homeland from day one. He is not going to settle, not even for something that any person in their right mind should settle for, becoming a god. Um, so he leaves. Despite Calypso's good, uh, good offer, he takes off. Calypso gives him an axe. This was apparently the only thing standing between Odysseus and getting off the island. Odysseus takes the axe, cuts down 20 trees, like, in a day. In apparently five days, he's got his raft put together, and he sets off. And it takes him 18 more days at sea, um, sailing and, you know, getting into various problems. Generally, not that much trouble, until finally Poseidon shows up. Um, in book five, I, I love the way that this transition happens, um, here at p line 275, and alone is aloof from the wash of ocean, Calypso, the glimmering goddess, had told him to sail with the stars of the bear on his left. Seventeen days he sailed the deep water, and on the eighteenth day, in the, sh the shadowy mountains of the Phaeacians' land loomed on the horizon, to his eyes like a shield on the misty sea, dot dot dot, and Poseidon saw him. And I literally have busted written in the margin here. Um, Poseidon has come back from Ethiopia and he says, Damn it all, the gods must have changed their minds about Odysseus while I was away with the Ethiopians. He's close to Phaeacia where he's destined to escape the great ring of sorrow that is closed around him. But I bet I can still blow some trouble his way. And he basically does the god equivalent of cracking his knuckles and proceeds to whip up a storm that like practically kills Odysseus. Um, now... While he is almost getting killed by Poseidon, he happily gets saved by Aino, Cadmus's daughter, the white goddess, who gives him this fancy veil, which apparently makes him, like, impervious to death and harm. Um, but he has to give it back when he hits the, hits the beach. Um, now notice, Odysseus's response is kind of unusual here. Look at line 360. Not this. Not another treacherous god scheming against me, ordering me to abandon my raft. I will not obey. I've seen with my own eyes how far that land is where she says I'll be saved. I'll play it the way that seems best to me. As long as the timbers are still holding together, I'll hang on and gut it out right here where I am. When and if a wave shatters my raft to pieces, then I'll swim for it. What else can I do? Now, we've emphasized, like I stressed, that Odysseus is pious. That's one of his defining qualities, like... Homer stresses this when Zeus says that, yeah, he always offers really good sacrifices, like Odysseus is really pious to the gods all the time. Notice here, 
This is not the act of a pious man. He gets approached by a goddess and his response is, Not again. Not another goddess who's like messing with me. Odysseus has been through gods and goddesses screwing him over. He does not want any more of this nonsense. So even when this random goddess shows up and is like, Here, let me help you, no strings attached. Odysseus is like, Nope! Not gonna do it, not buying it, not trusting some random goddess who is just gonna show up and like, oh yeah, I'm here to help you. Sure she is, just like Calypso was here to help me and kept me hostage for like five years. Sure, just like Poseidon and Zeus are supposed to help me, even though they've screwed me over in ways that we will discuss later. Um, Odysseus is really cautious here. He is not pious in the usual sense. And yet, at the same time, when he in fact makes it to land, he does everything right. He prays to the river lord to protect him when he lands up the river. He gives the veil back into the sea the way that he was told to, even though it's the only article of clothing, and indeed he's like washed up naked on these shores except for the veil. As much as he resents it, he does everything right. He still gives the sacrifices, he still respects the gods, he still prays properly. He is still pious. And he is arguably rewarded for this. The river does not buck him off. Despite being sleeping naked in the woods, he is protected by Athena, and no wolves or beasts attack him despite his concerns. Furthermore, Athena goes to Nausicaa and gives her a dream so she will wake up the next morning and go see Odysseus and rescue him from his situation. Which is itself is kind of comical and weird. Like, Nausicaa and all of her ladies... They wander off into, like, wander off towards the laundry pool to do their laundry because Nausicaa is apparently, like, really obsessed with her own impending marriage. Like, she doesn't have a guy in mind. She's apparently been shooting down all of the Phaeacian men because they're, like, not up to her standards. Um, but she stresses she really wants to get married. Like, she really wants nothing greater or finer than this, she says on line 186, when a man and woman live together with one heart and mind, bringing joy to their friends and grief to their foes. Um, as Odysseus tells her, um, she is obsessed with marriage. She, and she definitely has the hots for Odysseus, too. Um, like, note line 250. Listen, this man hasn't come to Phaeacia against the will of the Olympian gods. Before he was a terrible sight, but now he's like one of the gods who lives in the sky. If only such a man would be called my husband, living here and content to stay here. Well, go on, give him something to eat and drink. Like, now Sika is like, this is the first real man I've ever seen. Like, all these Phaeacian gentlemen are apparently trying to win her hand in marriage. And as much as she is eager to get married, she definitely wants to tie that knot very much in a hurry this nobody has shown up who is worth her time until Odysseus. Um, and part of that is like Odysseus gets bonuses from the gods. Like after naked man in the woods gets cleaned up a little bit, he apparently cleans up very well. Um, but notice like she absolutely goes out of her way to speak on his behalf, to protect him. She brings him home. She even makes sure that like he, she doesn't come home with him so people won't get the wrong idea, even though honestly, if anyone was to get the wrong idea about her and Odysseus, she wouldn't be that upset. He is still a real catch. Um, now, that's roughly the plot that we're dealing with. I do want to draw attention to one little detail that I kind of slipped over there. Um, in fact, a couple little details that sort of resonate with the themes that we've talked about so far. Um, first off, Nausicaa has stressed, stresses at one point that 
like she doesn't recognize Odysseus. She doesn't know that it's Odysseus who she's picked up here. All she knows is this dude is hot. He looks like the gods. I really wish I could marry him. I really wish that somebody like him would show up and I could live with them and hooray. Um, but she stresses around line 210 when all the ladies run away. Um, Athena like strengthens her. Uh, gives her courage so Nausicaa can like stand to deal with random naked man wandering out of the woods bellowing at people um, but she stresses at line 210 all strangers all beggars are under the protection of Zeus and even small gifts are welcome she stresses that he comes here as a wanderer maybe he was terrifying once upon a time but now he is clearly completely defenseless he has no clothes he has no goods he has no ship he got washed up on the shore and now he is a beggar and beggars under the protectioners of zeus keep that in mind because again this ties with our theme of hospitality what um what are our responsibilities to drifters beggars travelers people who wash up on our shores they are protected zeus especially protects them um, we'll see that again. But notice too that, that line that I emphasized earlier around 185. Nothing is greater or finer than this. When a man and woman live together with one heart and mind, bringing joy to their friends and grief to their foes. That's what Odysseus tells her. Like he notices she is clearly man crazy. She wants to get married very quickly. And Odysseus stresses that this is the best thing there is. This is the reason for being as far as Odysseus is concerned which should give us a better sense of what Odysseus wants why is he working so hard to go home for nothing is greater or finer than this when a man and woman live together with one heart and mind bringing joy to their friends and grief to their foes let's take that apart Nothing is greater or finer than this is like a straight-up philosophical assessment. This is the purpose of human beings is as follows. When a man and woman live together, one heart and mind. This wouldn't work with Calypso. Like, as much as Calypso's offer is awesome, like, yes, I totally want to become a god. Who doesn't want to become a god? By all means, why would you turn this offer down? Because Calypso and Odysseus would not be of one mind. Odysseus would always be second to Calypso. It would always be a gift. He would always be indebted to her. Penelope, however, as we'll see, they have one heart and one mind. They are appropriate for each other. They are a good match. Even more than that... They, they fit one another. Penelope, like Odysseus, we keep getting told, is very wily. He is very smart. He is very cunning. We'll see Penelope is too. Like the plot with the, the weaving and the unweaving at night, that's part of it. But there's going to be way more evidence later. Trust me. Um, but notice too that last part, bringing joy to their friends and grief to their foes. For Odysseus, why he wants to get home so badly, what makes Penelope so important to him is that they're an allied front. They bring joy to their friends. They do hospitality together. They are a good team for hosting their friends, bringing them joy, letting travelers stay under their roof and protecting them. Hospitality is the purpose of their marriage, in a manner of speaking, and grief to their foes. An allied front in the sense of working together to plot against their enemies. Be it the suitors, or be it the like whole Trojan War, 
Um, when you stand with a woman you can trust, with a woman who is beside you in all things, Odysseus is literally saying there is nothing greater than that, nothing better. That is what he lives for. That is what he is fighting so hard to regain. Um, so as much as, like, he has now at this point had pretty much two good offers to just not go home, one from Calypso and pretty much one from Nausicaa, Odysseus ultimately refuses. He does not make the same mistake that Jason makes, or perhaps this is a completely different morality than we saw from Jason and the Argonauts. Odysseus wants to go home. Odysseus realizes that united front, what he had in Ithaca, was better than anything else he could ever expect. That is his purpose. That is the best a man can do. Odysseus is grateful. Odysseus is humble. Odysseus recognizes it's his role that matters, not he himself. Notice not honor like Achilles, more like what Hector felt, that sense of community. Odysseus belongs in Ithaca. He is a part of what the Ithacans are, bringing joy to their friends and grief to their foes, in the same way that Hector did, bringing joy to his family, bringing joy to his city, his friends, and fighting against the Greeks, bringing grief to his foes. That's what Odysseus is fighting for. That's what Odysseus is willing to give up godhood for. And that's very much what this story is going to be about. Um, that is very much what he is trying to accomplish, which we will see again and again throughout this text. So we will talk about the second chunk later. Um, in our next lecture, we will cover Odysseus in Phaeacia and as we'll, also his recollected journeys of how he got there in the first place. So more to follow. I hope you're enjoying it so far.